Well, if you want to become a Christian, God said you will be saved. You will be one of His people. You'll be a Christian. If you have only one Lord and you believe that the Lord you have is the one God raised from the dead, if you'll confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and you will believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, God said He will save you. That's the good news of the most important point of the whole Bible. And now that I've told you, and we say here every week how you can be a Christian, and we hope all of you will be, today's passage is how not to be one. And that may sound strange on Easter Sunday, but I invite you to open your Bible with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4, or look it up in whatever app you use. 1 Timothy chapter 4. We'll look at the first five verses, and if you're new with us today, we are very glad that you're here. 1 Timothy 4 is just the next passage in the series that we've been walking through as a church. Today's passage is the one right after last week's. And today's passage, to put it in a provocative way that I believe is faithful to what the verses say, it's how to lose your faith. It's how to quit on Jesus. It's how to give up on Christianity or put it in a biblical category or terminology. Our sermon title on Easter Sunday 2023 is how to become an apostate. Let's be real. We are living in a time when Christianity is often being portrayed as the problem. And in a place where Christians are often seen as the problem. Many people, as a result of a fresh tidal wave of Satan's deception, are boasting of deconstructing their Christianity. Our culture literally celebrates people who deny following Christ after they had once professed to follow Him. People boast of being set free from all the trappings of Christianity, all the shackles, all the chains, all the duty, all the rules, all the weight, all the yoke. People are celebrated for boasting about their, quote, newfound freedoms after having left Christianity, as one who deconstructed her faith put it. They're enjoying that they're no longer, to quote another young man who left the faith, no longer, quote, burdened down. I'm no longer, quote, shackled with any of that, quote, Christianity stuff. And if you want to know how to join them, I'm going to tell you today how you can do it too. If you want to know how to become a person who gives up on Jesus for a self-made religion, if you want to know how to be a person who trades what is truly gold so that you can have dirt, if you want to know how to give away eternal life so that you can have a few little moments of what you think is instant gratification, 
If you want to sell your soul to foe satisfaction rather than having a deep abiding pleasure for which you were created, then today's text will show you precisely how to do that. Today's passage will show you in no uncertain terms how to become miserable for time and for eternity. It's like Jesus said in John chapter 6. He looked His own disciples straight in the faith face. He looked his own disciples straight in the face after people walked away from him for what he had taught. And he asked them, do you want to leave also? At the end of the day, there are two types of people. There are those who have been united to the risen Christ forevermore by faith. They are one with him. They cannot be untethered. The fabric of their soul cannot be torn from the fabric of his heart. And there are those, even some of whom appear to have been Christians for quite some time, who never belong to him. And today's text shows us those who for a time pretended. Those who for a season put on as if they were one of His. It's so fitting for Easter Sunday when a lot of times even well-meaning Christians who are deeply embedded into their local church and hear gospel preaching all the time can easily fall into the pattern of just tipping our hat to Jesus. But I pray that by the Holy Spirit you'll examine your heart through His Word. 1 Timothy chapter 4 Verse 1, hear the voice of the King of the universe. But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the Word of God and prayer. This is the Word of the Lord. I ask you to pray with me again before we unpack it. Father, as the metal of our faith is tested by this fallen world and by the truth of Your Word, would You prove each and every one of us to be genuine Christians? Would You make it evident that we are among those who are united by faith to Your risen Son. And though our faith is often weak and frail, and we feel like we're tiptoeing on the precipice of losing our faith, we're asking You to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Keep us, Lord. Hold us. Grip us. Lock us up to Yourself. Protect us from falling away from the faith. 
Do not let us, please, O God, please do not let us make shipwreck of our faith. And especially, there are so many dangers in view for us. We especially ask you to protect us from bringing disrepute on the name of your son, for dragging him through the mud, the only savior of sinners. Instead, Lord, would you cause us I mean, you do it. You cause us, please, we are begging to be those who receive your good gifts with gratitude and to live our lives in fellowship with you, in accord with your word and in a life of prayer. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, clearly the title of the sermon, How to Become an Apostate, is not something we're trying to teach anybody to do. But this passage is in Scripture because God wants us all to be warned. Check yourself by the four themes that come out of those five verses. I'll tell you the four points or themes that come right out of those verses, and then we'll give a little bit of attention to each one. The first is the alarming prediction. It's in verse 1, and it comes from the Holy Spirit. He predicted that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith. That's the alarming prediction. The second is the apostate's fatal tutor. Who do people that leave the faith listen to? Who teaches them? One is their own seared conscience. Another one is demonic doctrine. And another is deceitful spirits. That's the second point. The third point is... What do those people then start to regurgitate? What do apostates start to say? They start to lie about God. Two of the lies they tell are that nobody should get married and you should abstain from certain food. So point one is the spirit's alarming prediction. Point two is the apostate's fatal tutor. Point three is the apostate's false teaching. But fourth, the good news, the Christian's Godward life. All of life saturated by God. That's the true Christian. So first, the Spirit's alarming prediction. You see it in verse 1, but the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith. Now your translation may not begin with the word but, but that's the first word in the original. But the Spirit explicitly says, that's clearly a contrast from the previous passage to the end of chapter 3, the glorious expose of the gospel Verse 16, which is the last verse of the previous chapter, is one of the most undiluted, bold, explicit, clear, in-your-face, unmistakable declarations of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the whole Bible. Instead of that, some will fall away from the faith. That's the faith that the Spirit says some will deny. The second line of verse 16's confession of the gospel. In chapter 3, he was vindicated in the Spirit. That means that he got up from the dead. That means the Holy Spirit brought the dead body of Jesus of Nazareth back to life from death. He was instantaneously and forevermore from that point on the fulcrum of world history. Everything rises and falls on Jesus of Nazareth. It is 2023 because King Jesus came to earth about that long ago. 
Our passage begins by explaining that the same Holy Spirit who snatched Jesus back to life from the dead is the same one who said, and some people are going to fall away from him. Some who appeared to belong to him. That's why the sermon title is How to Become an Apostate. An apostate is somebody who once professed to be a Christian and then left him. So right at the outset, let's be abundantly clear. It is unspeakably awful not to be a Christian. For all such people, the Bible teaches that this life is as close to heaven as they will ever get. Conversely, the Bible teaches that this life is as close to hell as any Christian will ever get. But our passage is not about those who never identified themselves with Christ. Today's passage is about a far worse situation. This is about those who, quote, fall away from the faith. The Bible is clear, while it is eternally and unspeakably awful never to have professed faith in Jesus, it is worse to have named the name of Christ and then to turn your back on Him. Although our minds can't conceive of the atrocities of what will become of those who never claim to be Christian, an eternal place where a worm never dies and a fire is never quenched, the Bible is clear that apostasy is worse than paganism. And those persons are who are in view in today's text. And the Holy Spirit said there will be some of those. One resource said apostasy is the antonym, the opposite, of conversion. It is deconversion. So when people boast about deconverting from Christianity, just know this is what the Holy Spirit was talking about. This verse is not looking at a person who's never been conversant with the truth of Christianity. We're not looking at a person who didn't know the claims of Christ, we're looking at somebody who has known and said that they profess to have believed the core tenets of the Christian message. And they're willfully turning their back on Jesus. So when will this happen? The verse tells us, verse 1, some will fall away from the faith. When? In latter times. One commentary says those latter times are right now. Quote, latter times means right now, as Paul writes or dictates these very lines. These times arrived with Christ's coming. Go read Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, talks about the last days. They arrived with Christ's coming, they intensified with his resurrection, and they will continue until he comes again. It is this season in which we live. It is these days. And today's text makes it clear that the Holy Spirit is the one who has told us that some will fall away from the faith in these days. Reminds me of the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah. God speaking through him to the people said, Know therefore and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. And I'm here today to try to help you reckon with how evil it is and taste how bitter it is to fall away from Jesus Christ. I kid you not, this doesn't happen to me every week. My quiet times every day are not 
fire coming down from Mount Carmel. I'm not instantly stirred to deep devotion to Christ every time I crack my Bible open or try to pray my slow, cold heart into the prayer closet. But this week, I was physically trembling as I read a number of passages about apostasy. The Old Testament says in 1 Kings 11 and Jeremiah 3 and Hosea 11, it is a selling of your soul to another God. It's not not worshiping. It's choosing another God. Jeremiah 3 and Jeremiah 5 says it is ignoring God's gracious appeals for you to repent, though He sends you dozens and hundreds of messengers to tell you about His love. In Deuteronomy chapter 13, apostasy is shown to be a being drawn away, like Satan putting a hook into your soul and pulling you away from Christ. In Jeremiah 2, it is described as a blatant disregard for God. I do not care what you say. It is a rebellion against Him. In the New Testament, John chapter 6, it is described as a turning away from Jesus. In Ephesians chapter 4, it is described as pretending that you're ignorant. I didn't know. Yes, you do. It is a resistance to God in Ephesians 4.18. It is a Hebrews 3.12 falling away. Not because you tripped, but because you ran the opposite direction. In 1 Timothy 1.19, it is called, now picture this, making shipwreck of your own faith. It's driving the vessel of your life into a rock that you know will kill you. Some will do that. Paul might have had Matthew 24 in mind when he wrote verse 1, where in Matthew 24, the Lord Jesus said, many people will fall away. And false prophets will lead astray many Matthew 24, 10 and 11. If you want to know if this is real people, like us, I'll tell you some of their names. 2 Chronicles 26, King Uzziah. 2 Chronicles 28, King Ahaz. Acts 5, Ananias and his wife Sapphira. Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 23, Judas Iscariot. 1 Timothy 1, Hymenaeus, Alexander. 2 Timothy 4, Demas. The New Testament has so many warnings about this. The warnings are for believers. Hebrews is inundated with these warnings. There are six of them. I'm going to read two for you. The warnings are a sign on the road, cliff ahead, don't go this way. When Christians read that sign, they turn around. When non-Christians read that sign, they don't care. Hebrews 6, verse 4. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible 
to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. They don't care. Hebrews 10, if it could get more severe, for if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains any sacrifice for sin but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who tramples under his feet the Son of God and regards as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and insults the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Apostatizing in the New Testament is described, as I mentioned earlier, as making shipwreck of one's faith. Can you envision that Holy Spirit-inspired phrase? And are you in that boat? I want you to envision that vessel sailing along. Envision it striking the rock or the berg. Watch the water rush into the hole. Watch the boat begin to capsize. Watch the passengers bail overboard. Watch the waves consume the last vestiges of a person's fight. That's the aftermath of a middle-of-the-ocean shipwreck. And that's the picture God calls apostasy. So the Spirit's sober, alarming prediction explicitly not beat around the bush, no inference, no what are you trying to say, Lord? The Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith. The second point is why. Why do they fall away? Well, I've given some reasons already fundamentally in their heart concerning Christ. But look at the people they listen to. They have three fatal teachers. Verse 1 says they pay attention to deceitful spirits. Verse 1 also says they pay attention to doctrines of demons and verse 2 says they have a hypocritical and lying conscience that has been seared like with a branding iron threefold delusion i'm going to work our way from the bottom up because this is how it happens the first thing to go is your conscience then you start listening to the devil's lies then you start playing with deceptive uses of the Bible. Paying attention is what verse 1 calls it. Some will fall away from the faith. How? Paying attention to deceitful spirits, doctrines of demons, and by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own consciences with a branding iron. It's not that they're not thinking. It's that they're paying attention. So I have a question. Who's discipling you? 
Who is discipling you? I sat up here choking tears back a few weeks ago knowing God can do more in 10 seconds than we can do in 10 lifetimes, so I have great hope. But I sat up here a few weeks ago, I get 15 minutes to tell all the women here, you are already beautiful. Everything in your world is lying to you about that. Now I get just a few minutes to ask you all again another question, while the whole world is lying to you. Who is discipling you? Who's in your ears? Is it deceitful spirits? Is it demonic doctrine? Well, I said it begins with a seared conscience. That's in verse 2. Look at that. Hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Can you picture that? Seared as with a branding iron? You've seen the brand on a cattle? You've seen brands on horses? You know what it means to put the hot iron, uh, put the iron into the hot coals of the fire until it begins to glow with the heat of the furnace? You know exactly what this means to pull out that iron and to singe beneath the deepest layer of skin on the animal so as to mark it as belonging to your herd? To scorch something so deep that it has a permanent brand on the livestock? You know what it means to be branded? This is what happens to people's consciences. This is what leads to becoming an apostate. But instead of an iron glowing hot from the coals of the fire and being pulled out and pressed into your conscience, instead of that, the iron is, quote, the hypocrisy of liars. If you listen to enough lies and you entertain enough hypocrisy, your conscience will become more and more dull. It will become less and less sensitive to Christ and to His truth. Do you remember, those of you who are Christians, I don't know who is and who isn't, but for those of you who are Christians, do you remember what it was first like, what it was like when you first came to faith in Christ? Romans 7.13 was beautiful to you, even though it's a negative verse. Sin appeared utterly sinful. You don't want anything to do with sin. Since then, have you become more or less sensitive to the Holy Spirit's conviction? Has your conscience become more or less tender to the Spirit of Christ? Who's teaching you? Who's training you? Who are your influencers? Whose conduct do you try to mirror and match? Who do you wish you were more like? Who says it the way you love it? Who are you trying to emulate? Who do you really want to be like? Who's discipling you? Is your standard of purity more or less shaped by biblical truth, more or less than when you first said you became a Christian. More or less shaped by biblical truth when it comes to movies and entertainment 
and conversation and vulgarity and coarse joking and social media or anything else you want to put in that blank. Is it okay with you if we project your viewing history on these two monitors for just a moment? And all the images and videos of the social media post for everybody to see. Who's discipling you? Who's in your TikTok feed? Who's in your Instagram feed? Who's on your Zoomerang or Twitter or Facebook or YouTube or Be Real or Locket? Who's discipling you? And what does your conscience have to say about it? The first step in falling away from Jesus. If you want to know the fast track to not be a Christian, stop listening to your conscience. Or sear it so bad that you can't hear it anymore. The branding iron of hypocrisy and lies do something to you. The second teacher for apostates under number two, moving up the list, is demonic doctrine. It's at the end of verse one, they pay attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. I'm asking the same question, who's discipling you? People who apostatize from Jesus pay attention to doctrines of demons. And if you hadn't noticed, there's a whole lot of demonic teaching in every generation. That's been the case since Genesis chapter 3. It's not going away until Jesus returns. Our generation is no exception. Demons are doing discipleship every day. Here's a faithful litmus test on demonic doctrine. For any teaching that poses as Christian, for any teaching you say, ah, that's good. That's Christian teaching. That's good Bible teaching. Does it humble your pride? Does your favorite teaching, I'm talking about the stuff you've listened to hours of, cumulative weeks of, is it making you deny yourself? Or does it pamper and feed self? Does your God always agree with you? If so, you need a new one. Are your fleshly desires cultivated or killed through the doctrine you imbibe? Put it in a compact phrase, Pierce Reedhead, I'll quote, said, the deification of man was born in hell and the glorification of God was born in heaven. Does it put you on a pedestal? And everybody who agrees with you is, of course, right. You know, the devil and his demons want you to indulge yourself do you know that they want to feed your appetite provided it leads to direct defiance of God? That's exactly what the enemy did to our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the garden. You know this. Demons believe all the core truth of Christianity. And they tremble. James 2.19, you believe that God is one? It's core truth of Christianity. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. They tremble. But you want to know what they don't do? 
And I'm asking, do you do what they don't do? Do you know what demons don't do? Bow to the resurrected Jesus by faith. They don't love him. They don't prize him. They don't treasure him. They don't want to be conformed into his image. They don't want to honor him and exalt him and extol him and exult in him. They don't want to drink from the river of his delights. They don't want to be satisfied in him. So I'm asking, does the teaching you imbibe make you want that? To quote Paul in another place, these are people that have a form of godliness. Demons can do that. God's word even says they can pose as angels of light. They can have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. Less of you, more of Jesus. None of self, all of thee. Does your religion make you fight sin? If not, 2 Timothy 3.5, avoid such men as these. The third tutor that apostates have Not only is their conscience seared and they listen to demonic doctrine, but back up in verse 1, they pay attention to deceitful spirits. These are lies that masquerade as truth. Paying attention to deceitful spirits. Deception is by definition duping somebody by means of trickery. You pretend like you're interested in Jesus just so you can lure people away from him. These people masquerade as one thing when they know full well they're another thing. They lure people away from the faith by pretending to be of the faith. And Paul wants Timothy to know that in the last times, the Holy Spirit is not stuttering. He's not mincing words. Apostates will pay attention to these people. Do you want to know what these deceptive spirits will talk about? Pretty much everything except the pure gospel of verse 16 in the previous chapter. It's not that they're short on words. It's not even that they're short on Bible words. They're just short on the glory, bounty, beauty, fullness, sufficiency, all-satisfying purity of Jesus. They don't relish Him. They don't love him. I'm not saying that it's deceptive to talk about something other than the gospel. It is not. But I am saying that deceivers love to talk about the Bible without ever getting to the gospel. They love to major on the minors. To take precious doctrines entire sections of redemptive history in the Old Testament, all of which in total were designed by the king of the universe to point toward his glorious son and to divorce them from the pearl of great price. They love to use the Bible unbiblically, or as chapter 1 says, to use the law unlawfully. Is this describing you? Ask yourself this question. I'm not going to pause long after it, so ask yourself the question. Can you sustain an extended conversation about the beauty and glory of the risen Jesus? If I hand you this microphone right now, would you be able to tell these immortal souls, everybody in here is going to live forever. The only question is where? Would you be able to tell these immortal souls 
about the grace and glory of Christ that are found in his gospel? Can you tell these people how to have a fair meeting with God? Would you be able to tell us that they can be brought to God through the death and resurrection of his son alone? And are you, 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 are you captured like Paul and Timothy were? That that grace came to the chief of sinners. That Jesus stepped out of heaven and hunted you down because he loves you. Are you stupefied by that? Or do you have a seared conscience that leads to demonic doctrine, that leads to listening to deceitful spirits? That's how you can apostatize. And inevitably, those who imbibe false teaching then begin to regurgitate it, which is the third point. Not only the apostates' fatal tutors, but their false teaching. Look at verse 3. There's two things they lie about in this verse. It's not the only things they lie about. But these men, verse 3, forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. Don't get married. Don't eat this food. Once somebody imbibes the threefold declension of verses 1 and 2, they begin to regurgitate those lies through their own mouth. The false teaching is clearly twofold in verse 3. They forbid marriage and they advocate abstaining from certain foods. The Dictionary of Bible Themes said about this phrase, this verse, those who return to strict observance of Jewish days and festivals and marital sanctions have not understood the gospel. That's why I call them apostates. Why do these people lie about marriage and food? That seems like, pick something else. You want to know why they lie about this? Because just like you and me, they can go find some verses to support their erroneous lies. They talk about these things because they got plenty of chapters and verses about marriage and plenty of chapters and verses about food. And they can draw inferences that are not true that could look like it. Jesus was never married. The Old Testament dietary laws demanded that you abstain from eating certain types of food. They can put their finger on the verses. They can show you. How are you going to argue with that? To forbid marriage is unbiblical. You don't have to be married to be a Christian. But to forbid it is God dishonoring, sinful, to quote the Bible, the dictionary of biblical themes, it is to not understand the gospel. The Apostle Paul has no chill for anybody who uses the Bible to lead people away from the gospel. And I don't either. When I say he has no chill, Paul showed up at a house when Peter was eating dinner and rebuked him to his face in front of everybody, quote, when I saw 
that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. The gospel? I thought it was about dinner. It was about food. Until all of a sudden, you made it about fidelity to following Jesus. If Peter can get rebuked for being, quote, out of step with the truth of the gospel, so can we. Who rebukes you? I don't mean without your permission. I mean because you seek it out. Who's helping you make sure that you're in step with the truth of the gospel? Do you have any concerns at all about anything in your construct of belief? False teaching that's antithetical to the gospel in verse 3 sounds so similar to what was going on in another church in the New Testament, forbid marriage, abstain from certain foods. The other church is the church at Colossae. Just like 1 Timothy, Paul told them the true gospel. He had just told Timothy the true gospel in chapter 3. He tells the Colossians the true gospel. Listen to the true gospel. You were dead in your transgressions. And in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with Christ. He forgave all your transgressions. He canceled out the certificate of your debt consisting of decrees against us, which were hostile to us. How did God cancel them? I'm glad you asked. He took them out of the way, having nailed them to the cross. Did he put a piece of paper on the cross? These are Jordan's offenses. No, he put his son on the cross. That is my offense. He became my offense. And through that, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Christ. That's the pure gospel. Right after that, he starts talking about the same thing that Timothy's talking about. People apparently were trying to sneak into the Colossian church and distract them from Jesus. With what? Food. No one is to act as your judge. Very next verse. In regard to food or drink, in respect to a festival or new moon or Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement or the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions that he's seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, but not holding fast to Christ, from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? All of which are things destined to perish with the use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. Here it comes. I asked you earlier, does your religion help you fight sin? This is why I asked you that question. These are matters like abstaining from certain food, not getting married. These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. You know what they don't do? They don't help you fight sin. 
Does your religion help you fight sin? If your religion doesn't convict you of your, of your sin and empower you to make war on your sin, then Paul wants you to know from Colossians 1, it's man-made. In other words, you can continue living in sin without conviction, knowing that it is a sin for which Jesus died. You might have a lot of religion, but you've got to know Jesus. Which takes us to our final point, the Godward life. The Spirit's shocking prediction. A lot of people are going to fall away. The apostate's fatal tutors, seared conscience, demonic doctrine, deceitful spirits. The apostate's false teaching. Don't get married. Don't eat food. You'll be a lot more religious if you just do it my way. Here, I'll show you a few verses. What about Jesus? The Christian's Godward life. Verse 3b through 5. Verse 3 says, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude for it's sanctified by means of the word of God in prayer. Do you want to live the blessed life? Do you want to avoid becoming miserable by indulging your sin and your flesh? Do you want to avoid trying to set up man-made barriers between you and God? This passage gives you two ways to do it. Submit to the Creator and believe and know the truth. Verse 3, foods which God has created. That means He's the Creator of that and everything else. If you don't believe Genesis 1-1, you can't believe the rest of the Bible. God is the Creator. He made you, not you yourself. You did not make yourself. Therefore, He has sovereign prerogative over us. If you deny God as Creator, inevitably you are left with one and only one choice. Make your own rules for life and everything. If you don't worship God as creator, it doesn't mean you won't worship. It just means you'll worship his creation, Romans 1, and the end result will be you will be damned. Christians know we're created, and everything we have comes from our creator, even the food at our table. We also know as Christians, and this is astonishing, that the Creator is not a generic deity out there way off in the sky somewhere. The Bible is explicitly clear that the person of the triune God, Father, Son, Spirit, the person of the triune God that created everything, including you, is the same one who died for our sins against our Creator. Therefore, we gladly submit to Him. I said, submit to the Creator, but also believe and know the truth. Verse 3 says, these are to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. 
The only people who rightly worship, everybody worships, the only people who rightly worship, worship the Creator because they know His truth and they believe it. Fundamentally, Christians don't lean on our own understanding. We don't think we're better at believing than anybody else. We weren't better at figuring out religion than anybody. God revealed His truth. He didn't ask us our opinion. He revealed Himself. Generally in creation, specifically in His Word written and in His Son incarnate, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the God of truth. He is truth. And He reveals His truth. You either believe truth is inside you or outside of you. Christians fundamentally believe it's outside of us. Objective. You're either subjective or objective. You either get to make it up as you go or somebody else told you. And Christians say, God has made known His truth. We, by His grace, know His truth. And we also believe it. And then Paul gives three litmus tests for a God-honoring lifestyle. Do you want to not become an apostate? Here's three tests to help us. Verse 4 and 5, the first one, the first litmus test for a joyful life, can you thank God while you are doing it? If there's anything you do and you can't be simultaneously telling God, thank you for this, thank you for this, thank you for this, don't do it. It is to be received with gratitude. Some translations say in verse 4, thanksgiving. Can you thank God while you're doing it? If the answer is no, don't do it. If you want a joyful life. If you want a miserable life, then disobey God and receive the just consequence of your sin. The second litmus test for a joyful life, it's in verse 5. Does God's Word sanction it? Now you may, tell him some, you may tell him thank you for something that he wants you to say, please forgive me, because you don't know his word. If you tell him thank you for a sin you're committing, you should be saying, I'm sorry, please forgive me and protect me from doing it again. And the only way you will know is his word. Is it sanctioned by his word? By the way, in Mark 7, Jesus explicitly declared all foods are clean. These people are lying about God. I hope you had a joyful Easter lunch day. I hope you ate ham or whatever, quote, unsanctioned food some of these people in Ephesus or Colossae may have pointed to. And I hope you did it with great thanksgiving because God's word says all foods are clean. The third litmus test for a joyful life. This isn't hocus pocus spiritism. This isn't superficial, this is supernatural. The enjoyment of God in all you do. Can you pray during it? That's the third litmus test. Can you say thank you? That's a form of prayer. Does it accord with God's Word? That's another litmus test. And can you say thank you? Can you pray while you're doing it? That's verse 5. It's sanctioned by the means of the Word of God in prayer. It may mean a pre-meal blessing. Jesus did that at least twice. But you know, I've often wondered, can God bless my double cheeseburger? 
You know what I'm saying? Like, maybe he wants me not to eat it so often. But it's sanctified by the means of the Word of God in prayer. What I'm saying is it's not hocus pocus. It doesn't make your 7,000 calorie meal all of a sudden healthy for your body. That doesn't sanctify your food like that. It's not hocus pocus. It may mean a pre-meal prayer, but I believe Paul has a bigger vision of the Godward life here. Can you say in all you do, thank you, Jesus, for this opportunity. Thank you for this experience. This is such a joy. I receive everything in my life as a gift from your hand. Oh, yeah, this also fits with your word. I'm inside the bounds. I'm not running over the banks of the river that you've given me for the happy life, the God-honoring life. And then prayer, Lord, would you help me to live a life that honors you? He says the Christian life. That's not the apostate in verse 5. So our application as we close, what is the tonic to becoming an apostate? What's the antidote? What's the God-given protection? I'll have to show you in verses 4 and 5. But I want to put them into packages that I pray and trust will help you on this Easter Sunday. Very clearly, number one, stop trusting yourself. Your fundamental problem as a sinner is that you have too high a view of you. And that's because you have too low a view of God. Repent from you. Agree with God that you're the problem. You're the primary problem that you need to be saved from. Self. Self-righteousness. So when I say don't trust yourself, I mean don't trust your ability to believe. Don't trust yourself to agree with the Christian faith. Don't trust you. Trust Jesus, who even prayed for Peter and said, I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Would you do that for me, Jesus? Don't trust your ability to repent. There's a person in hell today. His name is Esau. He sought for repentance with tears and was not able to find it. You know what? Want to know why? Because he sought repentance, not Jesus. Just seek Jesus. Stop trusting you. Don't trust your ability to pray, to repent, to believe. Don't trust your religious behavior. Oh, I'm not going to get married because I love Jesus so much. Or I'm not going to eat these foods because I'm going to really honor God. Stop making up your own rules as you go. Immerse your life in the Bible. Stop trusting you. Trust God. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. Second, cling to Jesus. Have you ever become a Christian? You can right now. The very first sentence I said was, if you will confess with your mouth Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. You can't have two lords. There's one. Do you confess Him? You can be saved right now. And if you've already believed the Gospel, prove it by clinging to Jesus. No more self-made religion. Cling to Him right now by faith as much as you did the day you thrust your helpless soul into His almighty arms in the first place. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because God is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And if both of those things are true, not trusting yourself, clinging to Jesus, number three will make perfect sense. Share your life with a local church. Who knows the real you? 
And if you're a member of this church, let me be specific. Who in this room knows the real you? If God just wanted to use your household address for the people that know the real you, you don't need a church. Mark Dever, I like it, calls the church basically an assurance of salvation cohort. We help each other keep believing the gospel by continuing to point each other to Christ. That's what we are. That's what we do. Fourth and finally, make war on your sin. You have a seared conscience? You listen to a bunch of doctrine that never gets you to Jesus? A little bit of deception in your stew? John Owen said it so many years ago, and we've heard it so many times, but hear it again. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Or to put it in God's terms in Romans, you are under obligation, you are required. This is non-negotiable. You are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Make war on your sin. I'll conclude. Verse 1 teaches us that some people who appear to be Christians will leave the faith. Several years ago in this church, I was weeping at a coffee table, at a table at a coffee shop in Midtown. As I pled with a young lady who was a member of this church to reconsider the gospel. No matter what I said, no matter what verses I quoted, she had become recalcitrant in her sin. She told me ad nauseum about her super smart philosophy professor at her Ivy League school who had spent the semester casting doubts on Christianity and how apparent it had become to her that she was not a believer anymore. Earlier this year, This church took a punch in the gut when two people who we love to this day with all our heart were excommunicated by this congregation because they abandoned the faith. Sin will take you further than you want to go. And it will keep you longer than you want to stay. I asked you earlier, who's discipling you? And my final question, who are you discipling? It's everybody who you have any access to. I just want to know if you're pointing them to Jesus. Are the people around you being provoked to become more happy in Jesus? Because Jesus will eviscerate anybody who causes one of his little ones to stumble. You want to know who his little ones are? The people in this room. You lead them astray from Jesus, you will deal with him. 
Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a millstone, a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned into the depth of the sea. Jesus is not going to excuse you for leading his kids away from him. But if you feel like me, I'm hanging by a thread, Jordan. You're up here talking about people leaving the faith. I feel like I'm in danger of being one of those people. Good news. Guess who doesn't care about that? Lost people. If you don't want to be cut off, if you don't want to be left, if you don't want to turn away from Jesus, good news, that's called the work of the Holy Spirit in you. And the better news is, Spurgeon said it so beautifully, it is not thy hold on Christ which keeps thee. It is His hold on thee. He will keep you. He will finish what He began. Verse 2 of the song we're about to sing says this. The night is dark, but I am not forsaken. For by my side... The Savior, He will stay. I labor on in weakness and rejoicing. For in my need, His power is displayed. To this I hold, my shepherd will defend me. Through the deepest valley, He will lead. Oh, the night has been won, and I shall overcome. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. Father, I pray, as I did at the beginning, that you'll make us all true Christians and keep any of us from falling away from the faith. Yet not I, none of self, all of thee. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. In Jesus' name, amen.